0: i This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon. My co-host is Eugene Can, and we are joined today by our apprentice for the summer, Alec Rose. The format of this podcast is a little bit of catch up at the start, and then we pick two main items of news that has recently happened. One picked by Eugene and one by myself.
1: So the topics we pick are from our Make Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and an analysis of culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to come up with some kind of conclusion on the state of culture, media, tech, food, whatever it may be in our modern times.
0: Alec, do you want to give a short introduction of yourself?
2: I'm Alec, I'm 22, I've just finished university in England. And through the help of a mutual friend, I'm in Macon for a month to see what's behind a media platform really.
0: To keep us on our toes.
1: And to learn how the sausage is made.
0: I just got back from China, where-
1: Describe this city, because this is like, is this a second or third tier city?
0: The famous part of Guilin is the mountains. Like they're interesting formations and they are pretty. But the main thing I learned is that I had a VPN to get past the Chinese firewall and it still didn't work for
1: Instagram. The VPNs that you get from abroad that you use in China don't always work.
0: But it worked for everything else. And it's like one I paid for.
1: Yeah, no, I've had the same issue. Which VPN is it?
0: ExpressVPN. Worked for everything else. Gmail, Facebook, WhatsApp, Twitter, all the other services. Totally fine. Regular speed. And Instagram wouldn't work.
1: Interesting. But I think the best person to ask is someone that lives in China what firewall they use.
0: Oh, like how they get over it? Yeah. Or if they
1: don't. Exactly. But
0: there must be the way for like Chinese-based media publications to be on Instagram. Anyways. What's the latest with you?
1: Nothing of interest.
0: You got really excited about the Noah story that went up.
1: Oh, yeah, I guess we should dive right into that. So, shout outs to David Kenji Chang, who put together the Noah piece. When he did the first interview, he must have spent about an hour and a half, and then he went back two other times, actually. So, it's nice for him to spend, you know, three solid sessions with the team at Noah, Brendan, Estelle, et cetera. And I think the reason why I personally was really excited about it was just the level of depth and also the way that it was. Connected with something else beyond just kind of the current modern narrative. Like the fact that he linked it back to Guthrie, um, that sort of American folk hero. That was kind of cool because it's an educational element to it that also brings to light and maybe reinforces the fact that no ideas are actually that sort of uh, revelational. It's kind of always tied back to something else that has happened. It's just that they masquerade and they manifest themselves in different things.
0: What else went up this week? Jeremy's piece on Tuesday.
1: Yeah. So Makin member Jeremy Lung, he uh, did an art show, I want to say two weeks ago. Mm, In Toronto. Yeah. So he did a bunch of um, scrolls on Japanese paper. And that was kind of cool. I mean, for us, showcasing the work of people that might not always have a platform is critical. Because at the end of the day, it's like you're providing a voice for those that don't really have a voice. Or you deem them to not have the same level of visibility.
0: I think it's also interesting because, you know, Jeremy has been a Macon member for a while yeah. and he's definitely quite involved, has had quite a few conversations with yeah, each of us on exactly. different topics. And it's nice to be a part of his life in a way as a publication slash as individuals and for him to be on our website.
1: Yeah, we, All right. We haven't asked Alec how he's doing. What has been your sort of experience? It's Friday. You've been in for the last week. How would you sum up your, your last five days in the office? It's been a learning curve. Lots of different apps used to organize things which
0: <laughs> No, this is this is just about working with Eugene I think in particular.
2: I mean it seems like when they work they work really well. It's just specifically Airtable. But I think they're amazing. But Are you listening I to this? But then I've only been using them for 2 days. Oh, so
0: Yes, I was resistant to the change to Airtable because we had another system that was working. Okay, it wasn't broken.
1: But what do you think about it now?
0: I only use maybe like 5% of all the stuff. But it gets you what you
1: need. It makes you understand and respect the power of like organizing data. Do you know what I mean? Like at any given moment in time, like if you got over the learning curve, you would know the process of something without needing to ask anybody.
0: Okay. Alec, in your week here, has there been moments where you felt like the system was aiding you or getting in the way of you actually getting your work done?
1: Can I, can I say it in more colloquial terms? Was there ever a point in this past where you're like, yo, this shit is dumb? Yeah, yesterday, I was
2: just so lost for a while. And I thought, I can't ask Eugene another question. So I sat there like, I'm going to be able to work this out. And then I just couldn't, I had to ask you. And actually, once you showed me that, that actually made it a lot easier. And I could see that it probably does have much more power than I know how to use. Coming
1: around, coming around. He sounds
0: like a convert. My Uh, goodness. Anything else besides like tools and apps?
2: I just really like the way that this office works. If you have really strict rules in an office, in anywhere really, I think humans
1: are kind of naturally going to try and break them. I guess our belief is that your presence in the office is really on the base of because there's a certain merit and because your talents and your efforts are respected. So it's like, I shouldn't have to police you or I shouldn't tell you what to do. Like, I will, we want to guide you and there are deadlines. But the reality is that there's a certain like mutual respect because otherwise, like, I think at this point in time, especially when you're a relatively small team, you can't be in a position where everything needs to be guided along. To that extent so like there's a sense of we know where we need to go and how you want to get there we can either help you or you can pick your own way yeah it seems like everybody's kind of on the same page everybody knows what their job is that
2: day and maybe that is down to the various organizational
1: tools the way I look at it the tools themselves are super annoying to get used to and to learn about but when they don't work it'll be very evident because when they do work it'll, it's seamless
0: I think the culture that you're describing that we have Yes, it might be aided by the tools that we can work remotely, but because we're a small team, everyone here has a very similar drive. I think that what you're getting at, like, we don't have to necessarily be in the same place to be, to have the same goals and to be working towards the same goals.
2: Is this an unusual atmosphere to have in
0: a... Have you been in office before?
2: No, not really.
0: Oh. Well, what do you think?
2: But like, especially in like, media? Because I know that like this isn't the atmosphere that you would really get in like a banking office or anything, but
1: like no. you guys with your experience at beats, like is, is it anywhere? I think it's sim- somewhat similar. But I also think that at scale, that's the biggest thing. Things tend to break at scale. Yeah. Like even if we had another five people in here, I think the atmosphere would be a little bit different too. But it also depends is that in a lifestyle driven media company where you all have a shared interest, it's so much easier to find commonality. But when you have a company that really is focused around something that people aren't maybe as passionate about, then that's when things, I think, start to break a bit.
0: So the piece that Alec and I actually both agreed to pick on was from the fashion law and it specifically, it's a bit of an op-ed actually. It is related to current news, but I think Julie Zerbo does put a lot of herself into this piece. Since she's writing about Paris Fashion Week front rows, kind of showing different sides to the way fashion industry has reacted to Me Too. And she talks about, you know how Um, The Me Too movement has swept up fashion brands and they have done a lot of things like giving proceeds to organizations and giving funds to relevant people and appointing more women in senior roles. But then there's also this issue that she's identified that was specifically seen at Paris Fashion Week where some men who have outstanding accusations against them were on the front row of some specific shows like LV and Alix. The specific people she mentions are Ian Connor, who is at the LV show. And Ian Connor is also featured a lot on Virgil Abloh's Instagram. She mentions that and also was mentioned by the New York Times. And then he was also at Alix with ASAP Bari. And ASAP Bari, actually, even more specifically, they're not accusations, he has been arrested in May 2018 on two counts of sexual assault. So the Main point I think that she is trying to drive at is not this question of is Connor, are Connor and Bari necessarily guilty? Like that's not really, I think the question she's putting out there, but there's a duplicity in the way fashion is treating Me Too, because in some way they are capitalizing off of that movement, you know, selling clothes that promote gender equality, um, joining, this, the French task force on gender equality, these are kind of PR moves in a way, but at the same time, still supporting certain individuals that seem counter to that. How'd you feel when you were reading this piece? What were some questions that came to mind?
2: I just want to qualify that my arguments are me playing devil's advocate because I thought, for me, it was fairly obvious what you should take from this article was. So I thought it'd be more fruitful if, I was to play devil's advocate and we can tease out our real opinions on it. Yeah. My main thought was that there's a real danger in an age where everybody sees everything and you can publish anything you like. There's a real danger of almost tribal jumping on the bandwagon of like, oh, somebody has said that this
1: has happened. It's now very easy to ruin somebody's life. But that's more of your philosophical take, less so like this exact example, correct?
0: Well, it's a. I understand. You already said, like, it's not necessarily his personal feelings about Connor and LV. But
1: I I agree on that point from a philosophical standpoint. But then there's also a difference between philosophy and like actuality, right? In this case.
2: Yeah. I guess what follows on from that philosophy is where do you separate the
1: person from their work? If I can do like a, a quick aside, like, obviously, you're of a certain generation that has grown up with more and more sort of intersection with social media and having everything documented, do you ever feel as though you're on eggshells when you're like out and about or, you know, when you're younger because, hey, you know what? Someone is probably recording what's going on right now. Like, were there ever times that you're like, I just did something stupid and it's on camera? Oh,
2: absolutely. Yeah. When we say stupid, I mean, we're not talking anywhere near. (laughs) To an extent, you've probably done some pretty awful things and you look back and you say, if that was on camera or if that was in a message, in a chat room, whatever, then that is actually, in this age, liable to really affect my future. Yeah, And we've all done stuff like that. It's just some people- Get caught and some people don't. Exactly.
0: I think I have an example that is closer to what you're getting at about this danger of people saying and publishing whatever they want and damaging people's reputations, it possibly in a way that's untrue. Right. And to not speak specifically about Connor, who I'm not defending, but I don't know if you guys remember Casey Affleck and Manchester by the Sea, which was in the 2017 Oscars. And during that Oscar season, there was a bit of controversy that came out and the news was kind of pushing it. Like Affleck had just committed some kind of sexual abuse, but the reality was that he had settled two lawsuits in 2010. But the way the media talked about it was very much like, oh, this is a recent thing. You know, it's still unsettled. But like, actually, the women were told, like, he, he finished those suits, yeah. right? So I don't know. I, I don't know for sure, like, who's right or wrong, but we can say that, you know, the women were satisfied. And it was kind of like, oh, Manchester by the Sea is in the Oscars. So let's like find news to talk about Affleck. And I think that is an example of media and publications blowing something out of proportion unfairly to damage. Maybe their intention might not be like, oh, let's drag Casey Affleck. But it's like, for whatever reason, like this is salacious.
1: I, I'm, I'm, I'm also curious, if you do make a mistake, and I think we brought this up before, like if you do make a mistake, like how do you fix it? You know what I mean? Just a general question to the, open to the floor. If I fuck up and like I want to admit to my mistakes. Like, how do I do it? Like, for example, let's say hypothetically, something happened, someone sexually harassed somebody. And before it was reported, they came out and like, hey, I just want to clear the air. Would that even be weird? Like, hey, no one even knows about this, but I did this. And before anyone else jumps on it and finds out, I want to clear the air.
0: I think it'll be interesting to watch ASAP Bari's decisions because the sequence of events with him are a little bit more clear. Last year, there was a video that came out and then Nike dropped him and he was arrested by the police. So that's, you know, action by officials and not just people saying whatever they want. And he has been very low profile as far as I can tell, despite the fact that he was at Paris Fashion Week. And I think we have to offer some way for people to, Redeem their reputations.
1: That's yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at.
0: I think the thing that I think the thing that the fashion law is getting at though is not actually like the thing that I am interested in is not really Connor or Bari as individuals, but whether we can expect more from fashion brands and houses.
1: This actually tips into a question I was gonna ask Alec. Can you identify certain segments of people that are really big into fashion that would care about? you know, an association with someone who's been uh, allegedly to have sexually harassed, sexually assaulted women and people that don't care? Like, do you think they exist? Is it a pretty clear bifurcation? Like, hey, there's for sure people that care and there's for sure people that don't care. And and to preface, you would say that you're pretty big into fashion and you follow it. I think actually it kind of goes
2: hand in hand with the recent Noah story. I think he's a brand which is pushing for more social consciousness in inside fashion. Whether that is actually translating to the people buying it, I don't know. Uh, I think that is probably going to take more articles exactly like this one, really. I think it's separating the hype from the backstory is really hard because I think a lot of the people don't even know the backstory of the brands or the designers of the brands that they're buying.
1: Yeah. Do you think that something like an Ian Connor, something like what happened with ASAP Bari, do you think the people consuming those goods, I mean, it's a little bit more difficult with Connor, but like with Vallone. Do you think it's known?
2: Yeah, I think it is known. I think, unfortunately, it actually doesn't bother most of the customer base because I think it...
1: Sharice looks defeated over there.
0: I'm not defeated, but do do you want to continue your thought first?
2: Why do people buy things nowadays? It all kind of ties back into this whole buying things is like this kind of status symbol now. And it's like, does the backstory matter at all or can you separate that garment and it's just literally a garment? Can you literally buy the Velo, the Velo and Air Force ones and take a photo on Instagram and, and you do that purely because of the shoe? And I think that's actually the way that people look at, look at it now,
1: rather than... Do you think that's justifiable to just separate aesthetical design and...
2: I don't think it is, sorry, no. I think that takes... But some people do. I think most people do. I think that takes what is interesting about fashion... Away from fashion, but that's my opinion. I, I think that's quite a, a minor opinion in
0: the grand scheme. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Zerbo says the same thing herself in her conclusion. It is that brands, the the reason LV and Alex are okay with Connor and Barry being present is because their understanding of their consumer is that these consumers are driven by superficial reasons yeah. and hype, and will not, and it, it's not going to damage their bottom line by having these people there. And I'm not defeated. Like I recognize the reality of that, but I wonder who can change it and how does that change happen?
2: The change has to come with the consumer because if if the consumer isn't changing, the brands aren't going to change because it's working. Like but the fact that articles are being written about it shows like even if he's a controversial character, he get he just attracts attention of any sort, right? So if he's still attracting attention, then the brands are going to, going to keep him there. And if it actually becomes a situation where Virgil Abloh having Ian Connor in his Snapchat story actually then makes Virgil look, paints him with the same brush, and it's like, why are you, why are you associated with these people? Then uh, that's when it changes. So I think it's really got to come from the way that the consumer sees it.
1: I think there's two things at hand here. One is the the general sort of consumer base, I think, is getting smarter faster, right? You're 22. I think that's a pretty mature POV to have at the age of 22. Secondly, the media outlets that are representing these brands or that basically play in that space and also appeal to the people that are buying it and the people that currently, quote unquote, don't care. I think it's about... Their role within this. So if they continue to just let it pass, pass them by, and they don't bring to light this new topic, then I think there will be no change, because there has to be a certain media role within um, the evolution of this topic.
2: What kind of media do you mean though? Like is there
1: anybody? Well, let's let's put it this way. Like let's say, street culture media, right, is still in support of those people. Then I think that they are signaling that this is not a big enough issue for us to care about. And if they have the influence. Because unfortunately, a publication like The Fashion Law is not going to be where a lot of, quote unquote, this consumer base is currently interacting. They're probably not getting their fashion news there.
0: Actually, Hype Bay did publish a very similar article, at least that mentioned, it was titled, Does Fashion Care About Sexual Harassment? But the thing about media outlets, and we talked about this ourselves, is like, if we feel that we have a responsibility to talk about all things current. That means mentioning all the things as facts that people like Kanye and Virgil and Ian Connor does, like just that this thing happened, but is just by saying that showing our support. Like we've talked about this before, there was a piece that I didn't want to include in the briefing because I was like, I just don't, I don't even want to give it the coverage of saying like this happened.
1: To kind of clarify Sharice's thoughts, it's- the editorial decision of including something is bringing to light what it is. But also the flip side is that your role in media is to critique and to present an overarching narrative. And it's part of culture. It's like part of your your ability to come in and introduce this and have a POV on it.
2: Yeah. So you would say even this, the fashion law, giving it the time of day
1: is... I think the fashion law is different because it's not presenting itself just as news. Like there's an editorial slant there. Okay.
0: Yeah. It's as if Ian Connor is then, I don't know, like he's in a photo shoot for Alix. Should people even write that that happened? Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, it's just a thing that occurred. But by even mentioning that a thing occurred, you continue to give people attention.
1: Yeah, and relevance, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's no answer here. There really is no answer here.
0: It is, right? It's difficult. But you need to think about those things
1: because what it comes down to is like, as much as media itself likes to think it, as much as media itself likes to think it's objective, inclusion of a certain story is an editorial decision. Yeah. Right.
0: And we, and even as us at Macon, you, our stories are not like we're unlikely to be doing a big feature story on our website that's on one of these people, but we do include a lot of things in our briefing. Right? And we do have a bit of a goal with the briefing to cover things that our readers are interested in and that are relevant. And that would include whatever Kanye West and Virgil Abloh and Alix and these brands do. So it's like, well, I have this goal of being relevant and current in this briefing, but I also have this moral goal where I don't want to give people unnecessary attention. And I, I don't have an answer. It's it's something I, like every briefing, I'm like, do we talk about these people? Do we not?
1: I think the more controversial the statement, the more qualification it needs. That think, I think that's an easy way of looking at it. Because the minute you include something without context, there's a level of speculation and people create their own narratives.
0: I think what I can do, and I, I don't even know if any of our readers would notice this, is when there are news items, I don't necessarily agree with the people. I try to state it as much as a fact as possible, like as in person, action, date, and -hmm. not amazing or, you know, spectacular or like one of a kind, like to not include those kinds of adjectives.
1: What do you think about right now?
2: I'm trying to work out what you can do about it, but you it's it's going to be a really long process of people losing relevance, really, and I, I'm I'm afraid that I think that's actually the only way that it's going to solve itself. I don't think there is going to be a big movement, which say like Ian Connor becomes this villain that people stop reading about and stop following on Instagram. I don't think that's going to happen because his persona is that he is really controversial, but but that's why people follow him. And it's like even as serious as sexual, sexual assault allegations, I honestly don't think that that's going to deter most yeah. of his follower base. And that's a really sad state of affairs. But The think-
1: only way you could really do it, and this opens a whole other can of worms because it's censorship, it's like you just cut off the distribution points. Like if Instagram, it's like Spotify, right? If oh, Instagram was like, hey. If the
0: platform did exactly. it is what you mean. I don't think that's going to happen. Of course not. Of course but not. Spotify
1: did take off all of R. Kelly's music for right? a bit. Oh, they don't know. They, they didn't take it off. They they removed it, it
0: from no no. What do you
1: mean? This this is, they didn't suppress it. They didn't it,
0: suppress it, necessarily. They didn't put it on the we playlist. We talked about this. Yeah, they just oh, didn't they just put took it. it off the playlist. You could if you search for R. Kelly, you can still find all his music, and you can put it in your own playlist. They're just not in their featured like whatever those are called suppressed. Such an old person. Whatever hot forty. Suppressed,
1: yeah.
0: Um, But then it didn't affect his play numbers at all. So I think it does have to come from the consumer themselves. And it's interesting because another interesting specific aspect of this Ian Connor thing is his friendship with Virgil Abloh. And we can't say, because I can't speculate, like what is the nature of their friendship? You know, like maybe Abloh has confronted him about it as a friend. And it's, it's not really sufficient to be, for me to be like, well, no one buy LV because Ablo is friends with Connor. It's like, oh, it's another degree of separation.
1: So what's our takeaway from all this?
0: I think the takeaway is, I'm not going to say to a listener or anyone like, support these brands, but don't buy these brands. But I think it's important that people attempt to be knowledgeable like Even if you are going to buy V-Loan or Off-White or whatever it is, like it would make a difference to me if a consumer was at least aware.
1: For the record, Off-White hasn't done anything wrong.
0: Yeah. No, no, okay. hasn't. But I was just using a, an example of a brand. It could be Nike or Adidas. Or I, what I mean is that in your consumption, the best outcome I can hope for is that people are a little bit more thinking.
1: I honestly think that, that it's the right sort of suggestion but I think it has to go even deeper than that in terms of like, there's, there's ways of looking at things, right? Like why people buy things based on aesthetical value, based on cultural and societal sort of currency, right? So if it's the latter, that is a whole nother issue to deal with because you're placing cultural currency within a product. So until you can fix that, then honestly, whatever the most hyped shit is, it's still going to look very different, right? Like it might look like shit, but for you, it might look like a diamond. That's honestly, for me, the the biggest challenge. And I don't think there's any real easy solution there, which not to say I I don't appreciate and love fashion. I, I think I still really appreciate the power it serves, right? It's so dynamic. It's so, it just moves wherever culture moves, right? And like what was cool 10 years ago is not cool now for a certain reason.
0: I think brands can also be more hardline. Like they have that power to hire certain people, fire certain people.
1: They can be, but it also depends on what's the ultimate goal of the brand.
0: But I'm getting to it is I'm thinking not even specifically in relation to a support of Connor or ASAP Bari, but more affirmative action that is hiring women in senior positions, making sure departments are, you know, gender
1: equal. I don't, I think that is like an outcome, but there needs to be, Someone that addresses the underlying foundation.
0: I suspect that it would trickle down.
2: Yeah, I actually agree with
1: you. I think that's the other way around. I think that you need to have like a company culture that understands that and then it manifests itself as hi- hiring more women.
0: I think part of the company culture changing would be from hiring more women. But if
1: you don't understand the value of it, then why would you go and do it?
0: Even if you don't understand the value, if you just hired more women, you would have more voices in the room.
1: But that's like for you to understand that there's value. Like it's kind of chicken and egg, right? But, but it's, it's like not. the simplest
0: action that you can say is to hacks, ask a CEO, ask a director to be like, look at your percentages and let's try to make it more even. But
1: they have to res- they have to understand that there's an issue with that though. Do you know what I mean? Like there has to be a company but culture. Haven't,
2: haven't we been waiting for businesses to to understand that there's an issue?
1: Oh no, bit, I totally get it. Years. But for someone to change it, they have to understand the value of the change.
0: I've actually become more cynical. I don't even think that they need to see a value in gender equality. They just need to care about their bottom line. If they think of this, this Correct. is the cynical part of me. If they just think of the fact that by making these choices, it will improve their reputation and therefore lead to, you know, greater brand see, equity and consumption That makes of a lot more
1: sense. But I think you need, you can't just be like, hey, just hire women, no. full stop.
0: Right. But I don't even think the motivation for them is going to be, gender equality necessarily it's making a argument that this is good for your brand
1: my topic this week is how would the michelin guide understand chinese street food The Michelin Guide is arguably the world's most well-known guide around food as it pertains to just some of the best eateries and establishments. And it's been providing stars for restaurants across 25 countries. And if you're unfamiliar, there's a recommendation rating followed by one, two, and three stars.
0: The coolest thing I learned from this article is how the Michelin Guide started. Did you guys already know this? No, I
2: had no idea. I've asked people in the past why is Michelin's related? based off to the food. Michelin man.
0: I totally didn't know that they were related. Yeah. It was founded it was by the Michelin same man. people responsi- responsible for the tire company. That's crazy. Sorry, continue.
1: Um, so there's a lot of debate at times on what qualifies a restaurant to be included in the Michelin Guide. So they've recently gave out their first ever stars in Guangzhou. If you're unfamiliar, Guangzhou is a very sort of industrious city. And the Pearl River Delta encompasses a lot of people. If you look at Shenzhen, Guangzhou, and and probably in a few years, Hong Kong, unfortunately.
0: Well, I mean, we come from that province. Correct. Because we speak the same language.
1: Correct. Correct. So the guide itself gave out its first stars in Guangzhou. Four of the eight stars went to high-priced luxury hotels and restaurants. Residents of the city argued that the Michelin Guide doesn't recognize their local cuisine. And the stars were awarded to restaurants that didn't necessarily reflect the sort of um, underlying essence of the cuisine in the region. So what's interesting is that I think there's always been a debate in general, not even in the Michelin Guide, of like, what does your background have to say about your ability to comment on something in regards to food, whether it's like experiences, etc.
0: What is your two personal, like you, Eugene and Alec, your personal understanding of the Michelin Guide? As in prior to this topic, if someone told you, oh, it's a Michelin star restaurant, what does that mean to you?
1: So when I think of the Michelin Guide, I see it as a pretty accurate, rating system for sort of Western food, anything from the Western world. But when it starts to kind of get into non-Western food, then it's always kind of with an asterisk for me.
0: Does it say anything else about the restaurants to you?
1: Um, there's a certain level of quality. Like I think that you, you won't go to a Michelin restaurant, a Michelin rated restaurant and feel as though oh, this is like the worst experience ever. I think there's an underlying quality there, whether it's service, whether it's food. Um, but I think in general, like it wields a lot of power. And some people, even on the restaurant side, like they don't even want that rating because it just causes a lot of unnecessary headaches because of popularity. Like People are like, oh, remove me from the list. I don't want your rating.
0: I did not know that.
1: Uh, check it. It's like a French restaurant Michelin guide.
0: What about you, Alec? What would you say, like, if someone told you, oh, I want to take you to this Michelin star restaurant, how'd you feel about it?
1: I actually wouldn't
2: feel that much about it. Obviously, it'd be exciting just purely because it's associated with more than just the food, I think. I I would be expecting, like, an experience of, like, food as almost an art form. Yeah, that's accurate. And a lot of money I would associate
1: it with. For the most part, yeah. Yeah. In, In Europe, I would say that the Michelin stars are a little bit more reasonable.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Before I found out that Tim Ho Wan, our dim sum place, like the local dim sum the place in Hong Kong. Loves. It's very we went, good.
1: We went it in twice in two days. Did you
0: really? Yeah. yeah. What's your favorite dim sum? Sidebar. Guess. Yeah. It has to be the bolo atasio bao. It has to be the… Barbecue bar. Yeah, yeah. It has to be. It's so good. Um, so before Tim Ho Wan got it, I think I did have an assumption that Michelin star restaurants were necessarily more expensive. Maybe not… The most expensive, but like you know, three four dollar
1: signs. The, but the thing is, Timo One I feel is a really gimmicky addition. Like it doesn't fulfill the usual criteria. Why
0: do you feel like it's gimmicky? The
1: service isn't on on
0: right point. because like, the, the food service is really should be good. part of
1: it. The right. food might be great, but right. the service doesn't reflect that. Right.
0: So to get back to the specific article, I think that hits onto why the stars were given the way they are.
1: Yeah. No. Totally. Like I think that there's an uncertainty in the criteria. And, no one says the Michelin star has to like divulge exactly how it looks at the rating system. But I think it's also dangerous to think that for you to have a commentary on something, you need to be, oh, I need to fulfill this criteria. Like I think there's value in having a different point of view. So for example, I might not be Korean, but I think I could get to a level of expertise to be a person that can comment on Korean food. And I think it's a lot of, there's a lot of things that come to the mix, like good food in general can be taste. I think the general notion like it has to taste good, but it could be story. It could be experience. There's a lot of things that I think are not to say overlooked, but they form part of the, the bigger, broader equation. So for example, like, I think there's also a thing that needs to come into play with authenticity versus taste. Like There's some food out there that in its local form, it might be created technically very well, but it just doesn't taste good. You know what I mean? There's a lot of like, I'm sure Cantonese dishes where like, oh, people love this, but it doesn't taste good.
0: The Quartzi article talks about these Chinese locals who were saying that Michelin didn't pick local Cantonese food. And their examples were pork offal porridge and fresh fish and river food. Yeah. And do you think that's a problem necessarily? But I feel like our understanding of Michelin.
1: Yeah, like I don't think it fulfills that. But the Michelin guide wants to be the de facto guide for the best food in the world, but it's not. It might be the best for a certain criteria. And I think if you can successfully identify what that criteria is on your own accord just by like creating sort of a an understanding of what gets chosen, then it becomes clear what you're getting.
2: I wonder why the Michelin Guide has to be involved in street food? Like they made their own guide, right? They know what criteria they want to fulfill, so they can give their stars out to whoever fulfills that criteria. Yeah. But what What I wonder is why do people think that street food does deserve a Michelin star? Because we don't know what they award these stars for. So. I, I would
1: assume it's a bit up based on like power, right? Yeah. And platform. If you if you're in the Michelin Guide, automatically it provides a certain level of credibility, I think, but also just the ability to bring more visibility.
0: I think it's a desire for my it's hypothesis. recognition too, right? I was just going to say that it's a desire for recognition that this local street food is excellent. But I think you're right that it's a misunderstanding of what the Michelin Guide tries to do.
2: Yeah, there are other ways to be recognized as Great, street food. And for me, I'm never going to check if somewhere is michelin star before I go, especially street food. I'm either going to search best street food in Hong Kong and then it's probably going to come up with TripAdvisor ratings. And that's how I'm going to go off. Uh, Like even if it does say, for example, Tim Ho Wan does have a Michelin star. If there's somewhere that's rated higher on TripAdvisor by more people, then I'm probably actually going to choose that. I don't think the Michelin star actually,
1: for me. If I was going to take this and I was going to extrapolate it onto other things that have a subjective nature. So for example, whether it's fashion, whether it's design, how do you qualify expertise then?
2: I actually looked that up and Rebecca Burr, who is the editor of the Michelin guide for Great Britain and Ireland, says that they look for people with a professional background in hotel school or equivalent, and at least five to seven years of the, in the business. Yeah. So obviously they've been trained to look for certain things and they, they pick up on those certain things, which yeah. are, as you said, probably top quality service, great presentation of food, basically like immaculate experience, which street food doesn't give and has never claimed to give.
1: It's almost as though the Michelin guide needs to kind of modernize itself and just create like a a diffusion brand.
0: Well, I mean- Michelin X. I think by knowing who the inspectors are and what they're looking for, you can identify if you as a person are interested in that criteria because we're not knocking the Michelin guide. Like, If you're interested in that experience, then you should check it. Right, but if that's not the experience you're looking for, then you need to go to TripAdvisor. Or I think what would resonate a lot with the making community is asking people who are locals. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the first go-to, if possible, yeah. is to find someone from that city.
1: I think like a Michelin X still makes a lot of sense because then you don't dilute what is the Michelin Guide's criteria, and also it you can start kind of encapsulating the essence of it a bit better rather than having like a random gimmicky like. There's like a chicken rice spot from Singapore, which I think dethroned Tim Wan is the cheapest one. Right. But it still doesn't fulfill the criteria. Like I went, I went there, I think my last trip and you get a number, you order and you get a number and you wait in line. Like that's not really experience. It is a experience, but it's not a fine dining experience.
0: Have either of you ever used Lonely Planet?
1: No, but I'm obviously. So fine, I actually right?
0: have used Lonely Planet in, Europe and in Japan, and it actually did me all right. Now I feel I know more people around the world, and I would be able to find locals. But back then, when I didn't have as big of a global network, I used the Lonely Planet food guides, and I thought the food like fulfilled my purposes accurately. And it was still a guide that I'm, that they have to have Lonely Planet inspectors go and check it out and give it a rating. So, so Tim Ho won for lunch. <laughs> I think that's a good place to wind things down. If you are interested in learning more about Macon and reading our stories that are focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can check us out at macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com.
1: Before we jump into my part, thoughts on this whole experience in your first podcast? Quite nerve-wracking at first, but
2: once the uh, conversation was flowing, it became a lot easier. You actually forget that you're being recorded and people are going to listen to it. Which I guess is why making it up is making it up.
0: Good closing. We should just use that for the outro.
1: You can also subscribe to Making It Up through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Eugene. I'm Alec. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.